0: There are several reasons for the stability of this church. One of them is really fresh donuts. <laughs> Another is mediocre sermons of a tolerable length. And a third is really great musical talent dedicated to the Lord. We don't applaud on Sunday morning, we don't applaud on Christmas Eve because this is a worship service, this is not a performance. I'm sure you've been applauding in your hearts as I have. The nicest thing that these folks sitting behind me could hear from you is that you added to your, they added to your worship during the Christmas season. And so I, I urge you to look, someone, look for someone in blue before you go home and tell them something like that. You would uh, make this evening even more satisfying for them. For those of us who have been Christians any length of time, we find certain passages of Scripture rolling through our minds during the Christmas season. They all have to do with Jesus Christ. Many of them are affirmations that were made about Christ by someone or someone else. For example, an angel named Gabriel was sent to Mary. And he told her of the son that she would bear, he shall be called the son of the highest, and that the Lord God would give him the throne of David. Sometime later, another heavenly messenger was sent to Joseph to tell him of Jesus that he will save his people from their sins. On the night of Jesus' birth, an angel announced the birth of the Savior by telling the shepherds, "'I bring you good tidings of great joy, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord.'" In the temple, on the 40th day of Jesus' life, An old and godly man named Simeon took the infant in his arms, looked upward into the heavens, and he prayed, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And it was shortly after Jesus' 30th birthday, on the occasion of his baptism, that a voice was heard from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And about two months later, John the Baptist saw Jesus emerging from his time of trial and temptation in the wilderness, and he spoke to those who were standing near him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. I'd like to speak with you for a few moments about what might have been in the mind of John the Baptist when he saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God. When you and I hear the word lamb, a number of possibilities pass through our minds. And one of these is of a creature of charming attractiveness. If you and I were standing along the fence overlooking a pasture in which sheep were grazing with lambs among them, it would not be to the, young, the adult animals but to the young that our attention would be drawn. Like baby animals of almost any kind with their big eyes, their curiosity about the world around them, their boundless energy. We point to them, we laugh at them, we say to one another, aren't they cute? If there were children with us, we'd have to restrain them from crawling under the fence to go play with the lambs. If we lived on a few acres and were looking for an ideal gift for a child in our family, we would be delighted for it to be said of that child, Johnny or Mary, had a little lamb, his fleece was white as snow. There's an innocence and a vulnerability about lambs. Lambs have a place close to the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gave special instructions to Peter to feed my lambs, he said. He pronounced a terrible judgment on anyone who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. And it was of Jesus that Isaiah wrote, Like a shepherd, he will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom. Maybe it was this almost irresistible attractiveness of a lamb that the Baptist had in mind when he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Also associated with lambs is their inoffensive nature and their harmless behavior. A lamb doesn't have the sharp teeth of a puppy or the sharp claws of a kitten. It won't shred the upholstery or chew up the newspaper. And no one ever heard of a child being mauled by a lamb. Jesus was perfectly innocent in his life in the flesh. He broke no law of God nor man. He once asked, which of you convicts me of sin? and the response of his critics and enemies was their embarrassed silence. When speaking of the reason for his coming, he said that he had not come to judge the world, but rather that the world through him might be saved. The scriptures warn us that this will not always be so, that Jesus will not always appear so harmless and non-threatening. The book of Revelation describes a time in which the lost will beg the mountains and the rocks to fall on them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb, it says. But while time continues and while men live, the invitation of the Lamb of God is come unto me and I will give you rest. Perhaps it was this innocence of character, this harmlessness of manner, that John had in mind when he said, Behold the Lamb of God. We're also aware that the word lamb means offspring or baby. When our children are young, we work with them to teach them our common language. And one of the ways in which we do that is by asking them, What do you call a baby horse, a baby cow, a baby duck, a baby sheep? And most of you don't need me to remind you, but perhaps some of you do, that the answers are a foal, a calf, a duckling, and a lamb. These words all refer to baby animals with respect to their ancestry and to their parentage. According to Genesis, a part of the order of creation, one of the laws of nature is that each thing reproduces after its kind. One of the quarrels Bible-believing Christians have with evolutionists is that frogs produce frogs. They don't produce birds. They might produce bigger frogs, or smaller frogs, or frogs of a different color, or frogs adapted to a different habitat. But frogs make frogs and nothing but frogs. God said to everything, go forth, Multiply after your kind. As a baby sheep, a lamb will have the characteristics of the lamb, of the ram, and the ewe, who are its parents. Their attributes become its attributes. And in that regard, the lineage or the parentage of Jesus Christ is an important part of the records of his life. On his mother's side, the Bible tells us that his lineage can be traced all the way back to Adam, who was the first man. On his father's side, his history is traced backward in time to that time before time. That eternity in which all things were made and all events were decreed. The Gospel of John begins referring to Jesus Christ with mystical language. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man, referring to his complete humanity. The Bible often refers to him as the Son of God, calling our attention to his complete deity. He is commonly supposed to be the Son of Joseph, but seeing him through the eyes of faith, Peter declared to him and of him, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the week after his resurrection, in his second Appearance to his disciples, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. As a lamb exhibits the attributes of its parents, so Jesus possesses all of the attributes that the Bible ascribes to God the Father. The holiness and the power of God, the majesty and the glory of the divine, the love and mercy of the Father are all properties that we see in Jesus Christ. As the senior member of the Trinity created all things, his only begotten so fully participated in that work that nothing was made without him. As the father rules the universe, the son sits at his right hand. In the ministry of redemption, the father offers mercy only to those who come to him in the name of the son. And on the day of judgment, they are both so involved as to make distinguishing between their roles almost impossible. The father and son share so completely the same attributes and powers that Isaiah said of Jesus, his name will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. This means, then, that Jesus is entitled to much more than our passing interest or our distant respect. As the second person of the Trinity, he is worthy of our worship, of our devotion, and of our service. The promise of the Scriptures to those who recognize and receive him as the Son of God is that they are entitled to know themselves as the children of God and are assured a place in everlasting heaven. The warning of scripture to those who refuse to recognize and receive him in the language of the second psalm is this. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Perhaps it was this idea of the divine sonship of Jesus Christ that John had in mind when he said, behold, the Lamb of God. But John was not speaking to 21st century American parents and grandparents when he spoke these words. And he was not addressing a convention of grammarians. His audience consisted of Jews, men and women familiar with the Old Testament law and acquainted with the religious practices that it required. To such as these, John's words, behold the Lamb of God, would not have conjured up, first of all, images of animals that were cute or harmless And they would not have thought first of the idea of parentage when they heard these words. They would have recalled countless times in their own experience in which they had seen these animals slain and their bodies offered as sacrifices in the temple, all to fulfill the revealed will of God. These sacrifices were made as continual reminders to the faithful of the sin in their hearts and their lives. Sin that required confession and at least a temporary atonement. This is primarily then what John the Baptist had in mind with these words of introduction. And it's plain when we read the rest of the sentence for he said, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And this brings us to the only real meaning that Christmas can possibly have. The angel said to Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus said of himself that he had come to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul later would write, this is a faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Without possibly fully understanding the meaning of what he was saying, this certainly is the meaning of the prophet's words, behold the Lamb of God. On this eve of our celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, I ask you, do you believe that he is indeed mighty God? Do you find yourself strangely drawn to him? Do your thoughts drift to his word from time to time? Does your soul find peace in his presence? Do you understand that he came to die, not for the sins of the world, but for yours, for mine? And do you delight in the life and the mercy that you have found at his cross? If these things are true of you, then you should rejoice tonight. Whatever the circumstances of your life might be, you should rejoice because life's deepest need has been satisfied for you by Jesus Christ. For you are one of those who behold the Lamb of God in time. And you are one of those who will behold the Lamb of God forever. Amen.